Okay, as you're being seated, why don't you stand up? No, for real, up on your feet one more time if you're able to. And church, as we prepare to open the scriptures, let's declare our faith together. Say it with me. Well, it's coming. I got faith. But we have it in our hearts. We could do it. I know we could do it. Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. These are the mysteries, and we are surrounded by them. We thank you, O oh God, that our lives are not without meaning. We thank you that our lives have purpose. We thank you that our lives are spoken for by Jesus Christ, that we're called into the kingdom and we're called into the glory. And sometimes it's hard to believe but we are saying with the man in the Gospels this morning who said it, we're saying, Lord, we believe, now help us with our unbelief. So I don't know how much <laughs> there is of us that believes this morning. 5%, 15%, some of us maybe it's just we're flying high, 95%, 98%, tons of belief. But wherever we are, Lord, I'm praying that you would address the unbelief this morning. Help us, help us. We pray that you would anchor us again in the story we pray that you would cover us once again with the assurance that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, tucked into Jesus Christ, just like we prayed over these little ones. We ask that you would help us remember that by the Spirit that is true of our lives this morning. We thank you that these things about which we are going to speak this morning, these are the truest things on planet Earth, the truest things. And so we pray that just as you unveiled the depths of reality for John so you would unveil the depths of reality for us and that in seeing what's really true you'd give us peace you'd give us peace shepherd us shelter us lead us by streams of living water we pray grant it we're asking may the words of the preacher's mouth may the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight O Lord our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Revelation chapter 15, you may be seated. John says that I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. 
Seven angels with seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed or God's wrath is filled up. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And they held harps given to them by God. So they're leading a worship service here. And they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And here's the song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you. Why? Your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. And they were dressed in clean shining linen and they wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four golden bowls, or living creatures, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God. Everybody say the wrath of God. Who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said. John sees another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with seven last plagues. So the perfect number of angels with the perfect number of plagues. Last, because with them, John says, the wrath of God is completed. It's filled up. And then he sees the sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name. And they held harps and they sing. They're leading a worship service at the shores of the sea in response to the fact that the wrath of God has been and is being revealed. Now, that may strike us as odd. The wrath of God does not seem like a thing that should awaken worship in us. But in the scriptures, it's actually very common that it does. That the wrath of God provokes praise from the people of God. Maybe the paradigmatic example of this in the Old Testament text, of course, comes from the book of Exodus. We remember when chariot, uh, Pharaoh's chariots, chariots, Pharaoh's, it's the second service, you know, just try and get it right. Pharaoh's <laughs> chariots and his armies were drowned in another sea, right? The Red Sea. God's people have escaped from Egypt and they're standing on the shores of the sea. And what happens with God's people? They begin to worship. They lift up praise to the Lord. I will sing. We used to sing when I was a kid. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the... Come on, you were there. I know you were there. They worship God because the wrath of God has been revealed. And this revelation of the wrath of God, it's not bad news. It's actually good news for God's people. Psalm 98 is a tremendous example of this. Listen to what the psalmist said. Sing to the Lord. Here's a worship service. A new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. And he's revealed his righteousness to the nation. He's remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen this manifestation of the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, the psalmist said, all the earth. 
that burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. So he's calling not just the peoples, but all creation, you know. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Why? For he comes to what? To judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with equity, just like it is in Revelation 15, so it is everywhere throughout the biblical text that when God reveals his justice, when he reveals his righteousness, when he reveals his wrath, it's a source of praise for the people of God. The wrath of God is a cause for praise. Now the big question is why? That's an unusual thought to us, to think that the wrath of God would be something that we praise God for, but it actually is. And I think that whether or not we're capable of praising God for the wrath of God says a lot about our view of God. Many people in our culture, the way that they think about our God is that he's just this kind of vague, abstract, metaphysical force, that he's the substance underneath all the substances of the universe. He's kind of just the thing, the impersonal thing that holds everything together. And if that is your idea of God, it's very difficult to imagine that God even showing wrath, much less us having a cause to praise him for his wrath. Mostly that thing is just kind of what many people in our culture would call the all, you know. Uh, in Star Wars, it's the force, you know. It's just a thing. And it's value neutral. It kind of has good and bad elements, whatever. But you don't really, you don't get excited about stuff that it does, per se. It's just kind of a vague metaphysical force for a lot of other people. The way they think about God is that God is sort of a kindly old man with a long beard sitting in a rocking chair watching the children play or sitting at the park just kind of watching things go by, you know, and he's lived a long life and he's paid his dues and he's done his time and he's put in the work and now he doesn't really need to be that involved anymore. It's just okay for him to just kind of observe things that are happening out there. He's like a great kind of grandfatherly figure in the sky that when he wants to get involved every now and again, what he does is he reaches into his pocket and he jingles that little bit of, you know, change that's in the pocket and he gives it out to the kids. Of course, we don't really do coins anymore. COVID-19, coin shortage, 2020 is weird, but you get the point. That's the way we think about God. Either he's a vague metaphysical force or he's just kind of an old man sitting in the sky that's kind of indifferent to what's happening. And the biblical God is neither a vague metaphysical force nor is he just kind of a grandfatherly figure in the sky that's indifferent to what's happening here. Uh, our God is intensely and personally involved with what's happening on planet Earth. The writer of Proverbs said it so well, Proverbs chapter 15. The eyes of the Lord are where? And what's he doing? Keeping watch on the wicked and the good, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is what? Uncovered, that's a revelation word, and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom what? We must give an account. The great Dutch theologian of the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper, said that there is not a square inch of created reality 
over which Jesus Christ does not shout, it is mine. We live in a world that belongs to God, that God is intensely interested in and involved in. He's not a vague metaphysical force, and he's not a grandfatherly figure in the sky. The best and most accurate thing that we can say about our God is that he, well, the creed that we said just a little bit ago. We believe in the Father. That's right, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. Everything else that we know about God derives from that first term of address, Father. And when fatherhood is working the way that it should, dads are intensely interested in what's happening in their household. I'm the son of a really good dad, William James Arndt. And my dad, nothing escaped his notice. And one of the things that he was intensely interested in that did not escape his notice was situations in which his kids were being mistreated. I'm the oldest of four siblings. Andrew, my uh, little brother is John. He's five and a half years younger than me. And I've got a sister, Anna, and another little brother, Rob, that pulls up the rear. And we were a pr- pretty happy lot for the most part. And I think that I was a pretty decent big brother by my own standards. But you know how it is. You just, if you're an older sibling, you just have these moments in your immaturity and spiritual depravity <laughs> where you take advantage of the position that you have. And this one particular day, my mom was out with the two youngest siblings. And so it was me and John and my dad at the house. And my dad was working on something downstairs. And I just mistreated John. I hurt him physically. And uh, my dad, well, I hurt him physically enough that he started crying. <laughs> and so I did the thing logically that you should do in that case as the older sibling. I jumped on John and I put my hand over his mouth and I threatened him with further punishment if my dad should hear him cry. (laughs) Most merciful God, I confess that I've sinned against you. (laughs) Before too long, you know, John is this blubbering mess on the ground. I've got my hand over him. I'm upping the ante on my threats, but we can't contain it. And my dad you couldn't get anything past. He was all the way in the basement. My dad heard it. He shouts upstairs, what's going on up there? I try to tell him that nothing's going on, that it's fine, but he knows that that's not true. My dad comes barreling up the stairs. He sees my little brother in a heap. It doesn't take him a wild calculation to figure out what had happened. (laughs) But I remember this, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. He looked at me after tending to John for a second. He looked at me, and he said, If you ever treat one of my kids like that again. And he didn't finish the sentence. (laughs) Struck fear and terror in my heart. But also, it was a moment for me of understanding that my dad was not acting irrationally or out of character in that moment but that the basic goodness and commitment to us that I knew about him was going into motion in that moment. And if I decided to set myself against the integrity of the family, then I was setting myself against the goodness of my dad. Does that make sense? Now, I've got four kids of my own, and there were times in my childhood that I thought that my parents were just being crazy, overly severe, in the way that they reacted about things. But now I know, having four kids of my own, that that's just what happens. 
because you love your kids so much and you're so committed to them that when mistreatment starts happening inside the walls of your house, the place that you are responsible for, everything in you goes into motion. And it's not as though you're becoming a different person in that moment, right? So it's not as though you're kind, loving, gracious mom and dad over here, and then when bad stuff happens, you become wrathful, indignant, angry mom and dad over here. We're not talking about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, are we? What we're talking about is the goodness that you have, the love that you have, the commitment that you have, all of a sudden in the presence of evil, it goes into motion and it manifests itself as wrath. Does that make sense to you? The character of God is not divided. So when we ask the question, why is it that the people of God are rejoicing at the wrath of God? The answer is really twofold. Number one, it's because God is manifesting his concern for the mistreated on the one hand, and two, his determination to make it right on the other hand. Does that make sense? God is always God. (laughs) He never stops being himself, and God doesn't just have his character kind of siloed in little compartments that he taps into here and there. God is good. Period, full stop, end of sentence. And whatever God does is good. And whenever God sees in his world things that are out of whack, especially people being mistreated, the goodness of God goes into motion to oppose it. The great origin of Alexandria in the third century said that God's goodness is the genus and God's wrath and his justice are the species. Does that make sense? (laughs) That the big thing that God is is that he's good. And the smaller manifestations of his character look like wrath and anger. The psalmist put it so beautifully in Psalm chapter 10. The wrath of God is good news. The psalmist said, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Now, why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, the psalmist says, you see the trouble of the afflicted. Isn't that good news? Nothing escapes God's notice. No bit of abuse, no bit of mistreatment, no places where people are being taken advantage of. None of that escapes the notice of God. You see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief. And then God does more than that. He doesn't just contemplate it from afar and go, oh, gee, I wish everything would get better one day. But what does God do? He takes it in his hand. He makes the cause of the oppressed his own. He makes the cause of the mistreated his own. He makes the cause of the poor his own. He makes the cause of the marginalized his own. You consider it. You take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So break the arm, the psalmist said, of the wicked man. Call the evildoer account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. For the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Brothers and sisters, the wrath of God is a cause for praise. Why? 
because it demonstrates the goodness of God. We look forward to the day, as we said in the creed, when Jesus Christ will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We look forward to the day when God, who is good, will be all in all. And do you know what that means? That in the process of us waiting for that, there's going to be arrivals of the kingdom of God. And those arrivals will break the arm of the wicked man. Those arrivals will will cause darkness to tremble, as we sang about. Those arrivals will shatter the oppression of our world. God's people are those who are wise to it when it is happening. Think about several years ago when women in Hollywood started raising their voices about the mistreatment that they were suffering at the hands of powerful directors. The Me Too movement broke out. All of a sudden, all over our culture, a zero-tolerance policy goes into effect. And that thing where all of a sudden justice that was long overdue was being done, you can look at that from a secular kind of perspective and go, oh, well, you know, those people kind of had it coming to them or whatever. But you know what Christians do when they see something like that? Christians go, the wrath of God right there. But Christians start singing like these folks by the fiery sea do. They start singing, praise to you, O God, for your righteous acts are being revealed. And when that movement seeped into the church and the church too movement broke out, abuse that had been hidden for years, sometimes decades, all of a sudden, It's coming out into the light of day. Guys, that's what the writer of Hebrews said. That nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's the wrath of God being revealed. And the people of God don't shrink from that, but they rejoice in it. Can I get an amen this morning? I need to know somebody's with me. God, guys, this is our God. And there are some of you in this room this morning that you right now are suffering massive mistreatment and there's injustice everywhere around you. And I'm saying to you that God is good to you. (laughs) He's committed to you. And your situation has not escaped his notice. He is personally offended by evil and he's coming to break the arm of it. Do you understand that? The people of God lift their voices in worship to God when the wrath of God is revealed because they know that that means that God's goodness now is beginning to flood the world. Just one chapter later, Revelation 16, these angels who have the bowls of God's judgment, they begin to pour it out and the final bowl, bowl is poured out in 16 and verse 17. And John writes that the seven angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is Do you remember what Jesus said from the cross? It is finished. Now here the voice says, it is done. I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a moment coming when the work that Jesus began and in principle completed on the cross will be consummated in our world. We are not living a long, meandering existence where our universe one day will just kind of burn out and go cold and all of the injustice of the world will go unanswered for. We're living in a world where the injustice of the world, all of it, will go answered for. And in our world, the voice will resound, it is done. But there's no more of that. That wickedness and that oppression, that stealing from the poor and plundering their grain, 
that mistreatment of entire people groups, economic exploitation, violence, murder, war, fear. There's coming a day when the voice will shout, it is done. It is done. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. And the great city, that city that had oppressed God's people, Babylon, it split into three parts. And the cities of the nations that had caused so much terror on the earth, they collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Guys, the wrath of God is good news because it shows that God is still committed to us, that he still loves us, and that his love and his goodness will have the final word in our world. Can I get an amen this morning? So the people of God give praise to God for his wrath. One, because it indicates that he's going to do something for the mistreated. Two, that he's going to set things right. But three, it's a cause for praise. And with this, we'll start turning to communion. Three, it means that we don't have to take matters in our own hands. You don't have to take matters in your own hands. We're not responsible for securing justice for ourselves. The just one is responsible for that. We're not responsible for righting every wrong on planet Earth. You know who is? God, the judge of all. He'll put all things right. And when we find ourselves in the middle of seasons of injustice where we're being oppressed and we're being mistreated, we know that we have a God who's fighting for us. And therefore, we don't have to overreach and become unjust in the process of fighting for our justice. But we can walk a path of integrity. We can walk a path of trust. We can walk a path of hope. We can walk a path of faith, knowing that God in his time is going to make things right. You might remember one of the great stories, I think, in the Old Testament that illustrates this. David is on the run from Saul, and he's going by the fields and the flocks of Nabal. Nabal was this guy, wealthy shepherd guy, that they had protected. David and his men had protected over the years. And as David and his men are going by, they send word for some provisions. Hey, we've taken care of you. Could you give my guys some provisions? Just make sure that we're taken care of. We've got enough food to eat and water to drink and all of that. And Nabal acts in a surly way towards David. What do I have to do with David? I'm not giving them any of their stuff. How could I trust this guy anyway? And David goes into a rage. How could he treat me like this? Like we've done so much good for this guy. Night and day, we've protected him and we've watched over him. And now we're just asking for some food and some drink. How can he treat us this way? And David all of a sudden decides that I'm going to let this guy have it. I'm killing Nabal. And you might remember the story that Nabal's wife, Abigail, a wise woman, comes and she falls down on her knees before David. And she says this to him in 1 Samuel 25. Please forgive your servant's presumptions, she says. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to... I love this. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living 
by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And when the Lord has fulfilled from my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, listen now to her words, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Not long after that, Nabal is struck with a heart attack. He dies. David is avenged. You won't have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged yourselves. Judgment belongs to God. And when we're in seasons where we're being mistreated, you know what the temptation is? Oh, you've got it coming to you, and I'm going to give it to you. And that's not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is that we pray for our enemies, and we do good to those who have wrongfully mistreated us. And more than that, we do all of that with trust in God. That somehow, as we feed our enemies and we clothe them and we're good to them, that what happens is that in that, the Lord heaps burning coals on their heads. You know what those burning coals are? They're the burning coals of conviction. (laughs) The greatest justice isn't just that we're vindicated. The greatest justice is that God burns the evil out of the world and saves the world. Guys, if you're in that space this morning, i got good news for you. You don't have to fight for yourself. God is fighting for you. He'll make it right. Let's stand this morning. Now find your communion elements if you have them. We know that these things are so because this is what happened with Jesus. Okay? Wrongfully accused, brutally mistreated. Jesus went to the cross though he had done no wrong and no evil was in his mouth. And to his dying breath, his words were, Father, forgive them that they know not what they do. He spoke blessing. And God's wrath did come. <laughs> and it came by saving the world. <laughs> he was raised from the, raised to life three days later. And the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And within a few centuries, that Roman power that put him to death on the cross, millions of people in the Roman Empire were converted <laughs> to the Lord. Guys, God is coming for us. And when we yield ourselves to him, he promises to be the God of our salvation as he's been for so many. And so Lord Jesus, here and now, once again, we tuck ourselves into you. And we remember that the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And it's poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Lord Jesus, here we are before you. Our whole life laid out before you. The injustices that we have suffered and the injustice of the world around us. And we are asking that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would enter once again into our lives We're asking that you would enter into the life of the world around us. And we say, come with your kingdom, oh Jesus. 
Come with your power, O oh Jesus. Come with your glory, O oh Jesus, and remind us once again here at the table that we belong to you, that nothing's going to snatch us out of your hands. So do it. Take bread and cup here this morning and make it more than bread and cup. Make it a real participation in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Grant it, we ask. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, let's take it together. The cup of the new covenant, the cup of salvation, let's take it together. And now lift your hands to heaven. And let's worship God. Sing it with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. now receive this benediction as you go from this place. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Thank you, friends. I receive it. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come down to the front. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you and for you. If this is your first time, again, see us at Connect Central. We got a gift for you. Stay warm, stay safe, get a nap this afternoon, rest up, enjoy the week. We'll see you next Sunday.